0: Well, um, Mark 6, and we left off last week in verse verse 6, and it's funny, we map out like months in advance the the text, where we're going to read, although we don't know until a week up to what's going to happen, what we're going to teach on. But it's funny that we hit Labor Day weekend, going into the fall, new experiences, school for some of you starts up on Tuesday, and then we're hit with an interesting text that I think you'll find super applicable. So let's just read it. Mark 6, we've got a lot to cover tonight. It says, he, Jesus, was amazed at their lack of faith. If you are here last week, Jesus goes to his hometown, Nazareth, and funny thing, in his own hometown, he's rejected. Of all the places you think they'd accept him, no, they pushed Jesus away. So what does Jesus do? Middle of verse 6 says, Jesus went around teaching from village to village and calling the twelve to him, he began, uh, he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. So Jesus begins to push out his followers to go on his behalf. Verse 8. These uh, were his, his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money, in your belts. Wear sandals, good advice, but not an extra shirt, Okay, whatever that means. Verse 10, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off of your feet as a testimony against them. And they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and heal them. So Jesus is going out. Let's just look at this. We're going to cover a lot more. But what we're going to see is tonight, Jesus sends some people out and something huge and glorious happens. As a matter of fact, before we look at these verses more carefully, just jump down. Jump down to verse 30. Because the story actually ends, not the next verse, but it ends in verse 30. You got it? It says the apostles, for, so first it was the twelve. But now he calls them apostles. They gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. So tonight we we'll are going to see the encounter. Jesus takes 12, sends them out. Verse 30 says they eventually come back and they report and it's glorious. Everything Jesus said would happen, happens. Now there's a weird twist in the middle that we're going to get to. But before we do that, let's go back to verse 6 and let's just let's just tease it out a bit. It says Jesus went around teaching from village to village. So He's kicked out in one spot, and what does he do? He's not down and out. Where Jesus is rejected, he just goes on to the next town, which is going to come into play on what he tells his disciples to do. Verse 7, calling the 12, not the 37, not the 100. Jesus says, 12 of you. Now, for us, no big deal. For those listening, this is a huge deal uh, because the 12 was symbolic. If you're a Jew, the 12 represents the 12 tribes that make up this family that's going to bless the world. If you're new to the Bible, you need to know this early on. God says to Abram, trust me, and I'm going to use you in big ways. And Abram, trust God. And God says, because you trust me, I'm going to take your family, which turns out to be 12 sons. I'm going to bless the whole world. When you and I obey, you never know what God will do. You just never know. So thousands of years before Jesus, one man obeys, and God does it. He takes the 12 sons of Abram, and he creates this huge nation that's set apart to bless the world. We talk about that a lot here. But we need to know this what Jesus is doing is continuing God's plan from the beginning. What's God's plan from the beginning? God's plan is to bless the world through his people. When you think about your life and this coming year, Like school starting for many is a reset for parents. You get a few hours if you're a stay-at-home mom, get a few hours that you can breathe again once, you know, Tuesday comes and send your kids off to school. But God's design is always about the world. He cares about more than just us. God's plan is to bless the world through his people. So Jesus, he enacts God's plan. The nation of Israel was supposed to be the blessing, but we know because we've read, before the Gospels, the end of the Old Testament, they failed. The descendants of these 12 sons and daughters, they failed to live up to what God had intended. But God's plan doesn't fail. So God sends his son, and now he's going to reenact what happened with Abram. Abram had 12 sons, so now Jesus, like the the father of faith, like Abraham was, Jesus is going to send out how many? Twelve. And it's not just that these 12 are going to bless the world, these 12 are going to be the representatives. And now you and I, if we're looking at this as followers of Jesus, we're just an extension of these original 12. So he sends out the 12, and he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority. Why two by two? Well, one is protection. They're going out as his representatives. Did they like Jesus? No. As a matter of fact, where Jesus goes, if you've been in the study, he's misunderstood. So he sends them out two by two, but also in Jewish thinking and teaching in the law, if something's going to be verified, like they had no hard evidence, they had no videotape, you couldn't take a picture and email it out. Um, if you're going to verify that a miracle happened, it required how many witnesses? At least two, two or three witnesses. So Jesus sends his disciples out He says, 12 Everything I've been saying, go teach people. And that's what rabbis did. That's what teachers did. They went, but they could only hit a few towns. So Jesus' plan, blessed the world through his followers. He kicks out the 12 and says, all right, you're my representatives. Everything I've been doing, you, go, you just go do it. And that's exactly what happens. They go out two by two. It says he gave them authority over impure spirits. Jesus isn't just talking about a better way of life. Jesus is actually setting people free. And people didn't like what Jesus had to say, but they couldn't deny. Demonized man is sane. Woman sick, no one can heal her. 12 years of suffering, she's made whole. Girl, dead. Jesus comes, she's raised to life. So they can't deny the works of Jesus. And Jesus says, as I go send you out, you're you're not gonna have to convince people Speak my words, do what I've been doing, share, serve, and in your doing and sharing, I'll convince people. And so they go. And then he gives them instructions, verse 8. What are the instructions? Take nothing for you for the journey except a staff. Everyone needs one of those, right? Don't you go out? You're You're in Hillsborough, don't you take your walking stick? Weird. Like, you know, well, I mean, they had like a stick because. They're going from village to village. Like, they're in the wild. They're in no man's land. So you use a stick to beat up the animals trying to kill you. Not that we're anti-beating. We're not animal beaters. But if someone's coming to eat me, I'm going to hit it first, personally. <laughs> That's just my own prerogative. So, so a staff's good to, to help you. But more than that, it's a picture. Again, Jesus is this great leader. Like Abram, he's the father of faith. Jesus the author of our faith. And like Moses... The people of God went out with a leader who had a staff. What Jesus says in verses 8 and following is an almost exact quote of what happened on the biggest day in the Jewish history, and that was the Exodus. Uh, Some of you know the story. God's people were in slavery, the 12 tribes. They're in slavery in Egypt, and they cry out, God, save us. God sends Moses to be the spokesperson to set the people free. So what Jesus says to the 12, this is very interesting. He says, it's like the exodus all over again. People in all these villages, they're in bondage, they're in slavery. Now Jesus, like a Moses, comes out with a staff and he says, I'm sending you to set people free. That's why we get this vague reference to don't take any bread, don't take any money, don't take any bag, wear sandals. On the day of the Exodus, God's people, God said to them, there's no time to waste. Now's the time. Get out and go. And so Jesus is implying here, if you're reading this and you're a Jew, you kind of get this. On the day of God's salvation, there's no time to waste. This is not a time to strategize and sit in the corner and, and figure it out. When God says go, what do you do? You go. So when God says to the people, I'm going to rescue, you need to get out and be a part of the rescue plan. So Moses tells the leaders, when, when, when it's time, all of you go. And so now in the same way, Jesus is sending them out. Wear sandals, not an extra shirt. The whole thing is there's urgency. So verse 10, same thing. When you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. This is not the time for look, to look for the best hotel. You know, now I must admit, I go against this command all the time when I'm traveling out. I'm looking, you know, what's the best deal? And I want the best hotel room for the lowest price. I'm cheap that way. But, but Jesus is saying, the task is so urgent, just count on hospitality. And in the Middle East, that's how they lived. There were no hotels. There were no places to stay. When anyone traveled, you went to the center of a town or village. And when it was late at night, you got your bags and you kind of laid at the center of town counting on the fact, in their culture, no one's homeless. So people would be looking. If there's someone at the center of the village, you invite them in, you feed them, you care for them. And Jesus is saying, time is short. you got to get out there. Trust me. Don't worry about housing. Don't worry about food. I want you just to see, this isn't just slowly plot. This is an urgent mission. And and this is going to apply to us as we think about our mission today. Now he says, sometimes they're not going to listen to you. So if they don't listen to you, middle of verse 10, leave that place. And that's what Jesus did. When they didn't accept him, he went to the next town. Shake the dust off of your feet as a testimony against them. Shake the dust off your feet was a, 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 Jewish, a Jewish euphemism. Uh, the Jews believed that non-Jewish areas, the Gentiles, that even the dust where they lived was unclean. Those who didn't choose to follow the way of God, when they would come back to Israel if you were a Jew and you went out to a Gentile town, when you come back to Israel, you hit the border, you'd shake the dust off your feet saying, I want nothing to do with those who don't follow God. So what Jesus says to to his disciples is when you hit a town and hit resistance, treat them and don't be mean to them, but move away from that town and shake the dust off your feet. If they don't want to follow God, If they don't want to hear the gospel, don't get overly burdened. Go to another town, and in a sense, there'll be judgment for them because if they don't listen to the gospel, in time, they will be judged. But the mission's important. Keep going on. So shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Now, this is the weird one. You do that with non-Jewish towns. Here's the twist. Jesus is now saying, not subtly, but overtly, I'm sending you, Jesus sent his friends to the Jewish people, to Jewish towns. And he is saying, I'm I'm letting you know what's going to happen in the future. They're going to reject you. You'd think among Jews that they would accept Jesus. But Jesus is saying, even Jewish towns, treat them like non-Jewish towns. They've rejected God. For us, no big deal. We get it. Some love Jesus, some hate him. But the, the, the thought was in Israel... All of Israel followed God. That was like a given. If you're, if you're in Jerusalem, you're a God follower. If you're in Jericho, you're a God follower. But Jesus is saying there are people who are outwardly in Jewish towns, doing Jewish things, following Jewish practices, but they don't have the heart of God. And that's like the culture that we live in today. America is a quote-unquote Christianized, not the Northwest as much, but for the most part a, a decently Christian country, and Jesus is saying, like he says to them, just because you live in a Christianized town or go to a church or follow a few Christian traditions does not mean that your heart is bent towards God. It doesn't. So when you hit someone who's resistant to Jesus, to the gospel, keep going. Don't be discouraged. Shake the dust off of your feet. And when you go out, verse 12, what do you do? He says, you should preach that people should repent. Speak up. Jesus was a teacher. He teaches the way of God. And so what do his followers do? They repeat what Jesus has been saying. And this is what it means to be, in modern day for us, a a disciple of Jesus, a Jesus follower. What's our mission as we go into a new school year, as we hit the fall, as we think about our neighbors and, and what the next year is planned out for us? We're to be a people who are to say what Jesus says. So preach what? Preach that they should repent tell people that the way that they're living is not in alignment with God's design and that there should be a change of mind, a change of thinking, a change of life, a change of behavior. Uh, Things are not the way they should be. And so part of our mission as Jesus followers is to lovingly help people know there's a better way and there's a better leader and his name is Jesus and we're on the way and we're following him and we're to invite people to have that transformation Pray that people or preach that people should repent. So, what do they do? Verse 13. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and they healed them. So, all the things that Jesus is doing, the disciples are doing. And this is the pattern of life. As followers of Jesus, we're not making up our mission, we're following in the footsteps of 2,000 years of Jesus' followers. We're to be a people who speak. We're to be a people who serve. They love those who are broken. They brought healing. They brought help. They were there in the trenches with those who are down. They weren't distant yelling, repent, Jesus loves you and I don't care. No, they were there. What a great picture of what it means to follow Jesus. We're in life with people who are far from God and where there's healing needed, we're right there in Jesus' name. And where there is truth needed, we're right there lovingly in Jesus' name. So remember verse 30. Uh, in the end, the apostles, the sent ones, those who are sent by God on mission, they come back and say, you know what, Jesus, it worked. But now I want us to spend the rest of our time at looking at what is in between. Because what Mark does here, he's done before, uh, he puts two stories together. So for some reason, Mark doesn't end this with they went out and then the next verse They came back, but rather Mark weaves in a totally, seemingly unrelated story to the first one, and he smashes them together on purpose. And so the first part I went through, because it's pretty straightforward. Jesus is, is coming, announcing the kingdom of God. That's the mission of God. Here's what God is like. Jesus embodies it all. He says, come follow me. We get that. But what happens when Jesus comes announcing this message and when he sends out his disciples? Look at verse 14. It says, King Herod heard about this, for Jesus' name had become well-known. And some were saying, John the Baptist had been raised from the dead, and, that's why this, uh, that, and that is why miraculous powers are at, are at work in him. So there's all sorts of ideas of who Jesus is. King Herod, who gets introduced to the story, thinks it could be John the Baptist raised from the dead. Now, before we go through this, Mark is doing what is called a Markin sandwich, fancy term. Sandwich, we get two slices of bread, something in the middle, and the bread, so to speak, is disciples are sent out, and then the apostles return announcing it worked, right? So that's the outside story. But on the inside, we get something different. Now, what's a sandwich? Two seemingly unrelated stories are combined for effect. What happens when Jesus sends you to your new school on Tuesday? What happens when a neighbor moves into your neighborhood and you begin to build a relationship in the fall? What happens when you go to work uh, sometime this week or you interact with new people in your community? What happens when you realize you've been sent by Jesus and you're on mission with him? Here is what happens. Mark puts in a negative story in the middle To remind followers, sometimes when we obey, things do not go the way we anticipated. Have you ever tried to follow Jesus and things just go wrong? Have you ever chosen to speak up in Jesus' name instead of people loving you? They're like, "Uh, no, thank you. And you wonder, why? How could this happen? I obeyed. Well, if you're like me and you want to follow Jesus, you need to know sometimes apostles return and everything worked out according to plan, but other times... They don't return. Let's just keep reading. King Herod, verse 14, heard about Jesus. He thinks he's someone who, who's John the Baptist. Verse 15, others said uh, Jesus is Elijah. That was uh, one of the Old Testament prophets. Remember, 1 Kings, Second Kings? Elijah's a prophet, and according to the story, he never dies. God takes him up to be with him in heaven, and so there's a tradition that went on from the prophet Malachi that when Jesus sends the deliverer, the Messiah, Elijah is gonna come first because Elijah never died. So Elijah who spoke for God is gonna come first and then Messiah is gonna come. So some are thinking, well, he's John the Baptist who's been raised from the dead. Some say he's Elijah. Some still claimed he's a prophet like one of the prophets of long ago. No one's saying he's the Messiah. No one's saying he's the son of God. Everyone has a misunderstanding Or some idea of who Jesus is. And so does Herod. Verse 16. But when Herod heard this, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised from the dead. So so we know that there's a leader. His name is Herod. Now, he's called King Herod. And it's actually a sarcastic slam. Herod is the son of Herod the Great. Remember the Christmas story? Jesus is born when Herod the Great is the leader of all Israel representing the Roman government. A little bit of history. He has a couple of sons. One of them, who is the guy in the story, Herod Antipas, who's what's called a tetrarch. He's like a governor. Israel's been divided into four regions, and four of Herod's sons, Herod Antipas is one of them, now lead a smaller kingdom. Herod. Antipas is not a king. Uh, So if you're reading this or listening to it, and Mark just wrote it, you already know what happens to King Herod. Now, we don't know it because we're thinking through the Bible. Picture yourself, it's 30 years after Jesus left. This has been written. You hear the story. Everyone knew what happened to King Herod or Herod the Tetrarch in the end. In the end, Herod uh, was a bit of an egomaniac And he goes to Rome. This is a little bit after Jesus is crucified. And he pleads with Rome that he should be made the king over all Israel. And in response, because Herod... Really was a spaz, and he was an ineffective governor, and all sorts of stuff in the story is going to come out, which will lead you to believe this is not the guy that should be in charge. But Herod, in response to being asked to be king, he's sent into exile on an isolated, desolated island called Gaul, and at the end of his life, he's bankrupt and a fool. So if you're reading the story and you hear that King Herod is thinking about this opinion about Jesus, you're laughing because you know. Jesus is proclaimed the king. Herod thinks he's the king, but in the end, he is destroyed. So so what does Herod do in response to this Jesus and the claims of John the Baptist? Verse 17. For Herod had given orders to have John arrested, and he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, who he had married. So Herod uh, divorces his wife and conveniently finds his brother's wife and marries her. Talk about a Labor Day barbecue. Can you just imagine it tomorrow? How's it going? How's, how's the family? I don't know, you took my wife. I mean, it's like this this and his brother Philip is a leader of another section of the Roman Empire. This is a total mess. So Herod is now married to his brother's wife, but it gets better. Verse 18, for John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful, and I'll insert this, or smart, you know, for you to have your, your brother's wife. So Herodias, this, this wife who left Philip to marry Herod, Herodias nursed a grudge against John, surprisingly, it's like a soap opera, and wanted to kill him. So, uh, she, but she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous. And a holy holy man, when Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. So you've got Herod, who kind of likes John, because what he has to say, he's a holy man, he's a righteous man, and who's implying that Herod shouldn't have married his brother's wife, which is his wise advice, and it goes against God's law. Herod wants to be king. Remember, John the Baptist, what was his role? To prepare the way for the king. Uh, John the Baptist is a prophet, a forerunner, who's saying, okay, prepare the way, way. Make straight the way for the king. Okay, Herod, if you want to be king, you shouldn't marry your brother's wife. It's unwise and it, it's against God's law. John's just speaking up for the truth. He, ma- he wants to make room for the kingdom of God. And, and the natural leader, the human leader, is not going a- a- according to God's design. So he calls him out. And ironically, Herodias, his wife, wants to kill John, but who's protecting him? Herod, so you got a guy sleeping with someone who shouldn't, yet he's protecting the one that his wife wants to kill. It's, it's a soap opera. It's a mess, but uh, Herodias comes into play. Verse 21, finally the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, She pleaded, uh, pleased Herod and his dinner guests. So what's going on here? Birthdays in the first century weren't like, oh, get an ice cream cake, balloons, huh? Um, Birthdays were celebrated in a pagan fashion. Jews didn't celebrate your birthday because everyone knew all a birthday was is a chance for men to get drunk and bring in a prostitute and sleep with her. That's what you did on your birthday. And so it was not something celebrated by the people of faith because it was a pagan practice and you have what's commonplace. So, so Herod gets his buddies, his high officials. They all get drunk. Now, a weirder, more sadistic twist, Herodias' daughter, so his stepdaughter, comes in to dance. So rather than a prostitute, he's got his 12 or 13-year-old stepdaughter to come in. And this isn't like the video music awards. Like, this is worse than that. This is his stepdaughter giving him a lap dance. And it pleased him. This, 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 isn't, this isn't clean and neat and tidy. You're supposed to be disgusted because what Herod, the king, right? There's two kingdoms. There's a the kingdom of God being announced by John, being brought in by Jesus and his followers, opposed to another kingdom that allows for a stepdad to be pleased with his stepdaughter's erotic dance. And at the same time, this dance is a plot. Why is his stepdaughter dancing? Because Herodias, his own wife, is going to use it to get back at John the Baptist. So the king said to the girl, look at verse 22, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you like he's a king. How much does Herod have to give? Nothing. (laughs) He's just a governor. He can't, he can't give anything away. So verse 23, and he promised her on oath, whatever you ask me, I'll give it to you up to half my kingdom, which is nothing. So you got a drunk dad telling his stepdaughter, oh, you're so excitable. I'll give you half of the kingdom's goods, which is not even in his power to do. So what you want to get here is is if you're listening in the first century to see the contrast of the kingdoms. The kingdom of this world is sick. The kingdom of God is beautiful and life-giving. And so he promises her, I'll give you half of whatever you want. So verse 24, she went out and said to her, Mom, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. So the mom is playing this the whole way. I'm going to send my daughter. I'm going to trick my husband. And I'm going to get back at this guy. At once, the girl hurried into the king with a request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter and the king was greatly distressed. He's a drunk, sick man. But he comes to his senses. Because, but because of the oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately went sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And the man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. So you have the end of this birthday party with... A man, I'm assuming, grossly put on a platter. John the Baptist has been killed. Uh, so the man went, beheaded John in prison, brought him with his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl. She gave it to her mom. And on hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So what we have here is a contrast. Two stories, Mark puts them together. Jesus sends out 12. They come back rejoicing. But in the middle of it, we see the story of a man who is murdered for his faith. Now, why the contrast? and What's Mark trying to do? And what are we supposed to get out of a weird, twisted sandwich like this? It's not what you're expecting. And that's what Mark's trying to do. He's trying to remind us and hint towards what is to come. In Mark chapter 8, we're going to see in a few weeks, Jesus is gonna say, if anyone's gonna follow me, he must take up his cross, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever tries to gain their life is gonna lose it. Whoever gives his life for my sake and the kingdom is gonna find it. What does it benefit you if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul? Jesus is gonna announce what it takes to really follow him in a couple of chapters. But Mark is throwing in a little bit of a hint. Before he gets to that, you know, in chapter 15, Jesus is going to go to the cross and Jesus is going to pay the ultimate sacrifice. But we get our first taste. What is happening to John the Baptist is going to happen to Jesus. That's what Mark wants us to know. And so remember, Nazareth rejected him and they said, we don't believe in you. But Mark, by telling us the story of John the Baptist is hinting, in some cities, they're going to say, we don't want you, but ultimately they're going to want Jesus killed. So what happens to John is going to happen to Jesus. But put it forward. Why does he tell us? Why do we need to know this? Because Mark wants the followers of Jesus in Rome, remember he's writing, to persecute a group of people. He wants them to know that what happened to Jesus can happen to them. And that is the reality of when we talk about living as followers of Jesus, living out the mission of Jesus, we need to remind ourselves ourselves, what happens to John did happen to Jesus. What happens to John and Jesus does sometimes happen to his followers. And this isn't, this isn't exciting on a Labor Day weekend. I want a Labor Day pep talk. But the reality is the text speaks about something that's dark. Now, you say, well, Jose, that, that's then. This is now. Do you know that right now around the world, there are about 100 million people, one not-for-profit, did a, a, a solid estimate About 100 million uh, Christians are persecuted for their faith. But 100 million of our brothers and sisters are... Now, why does John give us this dark story? He does it to give us both sides. Some people are persecuted. In this case, one dies. But right after it, he says, but 12 return rejoicing. You see the difference? He doesn't just give us a somber story about everyone who goes dies, but no... One died, but 12 returned rejoicing that God had used them and they were to live out the mission for another day. But we do need to remember in the middle of maybe our victory is that there are people who are suffering for the faith right now. Uh, there are people dying for the faith right now. Another not-for-profit uh, not did these estimates. In the last 2,000 years, Some it's an estimate, but a good one, some 70 million people, brothers and sisters, have died For their faith in Jesus, since Jesus died and rose again, seventy million—a guesstimate, but a good one. You say, "But that's that's not recent. That used to happen." Of the seventy million, some forty million died in the last century alone. A good chunk of those who have been martyred, killed for their stance for Jesus, have been in the last one hundred years. They say, "But Jose, I don't see it here." Well, that's the challenge. Sometimes we miss. The encouragement in a message like this is because we're not facing this kind of persecution. But for those who are facing uh, Christianity in Sudan right now, if you're in Sudan and you're a Christian, if you're in Syria and you're a Christian, if you're in Iraq and you're a Christian, if you're in North Korea and you're a Christian, if you're in China and you're a Christian, and you read this, you're actually encouraged. I'm not alone. It happened to John the Baptist. It happened to Jesus. It does happen to some of his followers, And texts like this become a source of encouragement because it reminds us, even in my suffering, Jesus hasn't left me. Now, I hope it doesn't happen for all of us, but I have to be honest. Some of you, for your stance for Jesus Christ, it may be like John the Baptist. It's not for most, but it is for some. The same not-for-profit did the the statistics that 105,000 Christians were martyred for their faith last year. That's one for every minute. That means in the time since we've been here, it's uh, 7.03. That means 63 people potentially were murdered for their faith in Jesus in the hour and three minutes that we've been here. We need to remind ourselves that in this beautiful thing called following Jesus Yes, there are victories to be won. Yes, there's a mission to be accomplished. And there is suffering that is part of it for those who choose the name of Jesus. Again, it's not popular, but we need to realize that there is a paradox in this. Suffering and the mission of Jesus go hand in hand. Suffering and a move of God go hand in hand. So don't get overly discouraged. At the same time that 105,000 Christians In a year will be martyred for their faith, Christianity has never been growing faster than right now. So here's the good news. At the same time where there is greater persecution, and here's the irony, in the places where there is the most severe persecution for the faith, the church is growing the fastest. So we see it in this encounter. While Jesus sends out his 12, some, like John the Baptist, will suffer for the faith, will be persecuted, killed for the faith. But at the same time, in the mix of it all, God is on the move. So if you're praying for a move of God in our land, watch out for what you're praying for because it will require some of us to stand up and be counted for faith in Jesus. Now, we're sharing that on the worldwide scene and that's what it means to be a global Christian, to recognize God is on the move and there is suffering involved in it. But let's bring it a little bit closer to home because most of us are not gonna experience what John the Baptist experienced. Most of us are, are... going to feel more of a social stigma for standing up for your faith. People in your neighborhood find out you're a Christian like, oh yeah, mm -hmm, right. And you just get the cold shoulder. You get the weird look. You get the, okay, they're a little odd. Or you're on your school campus or in the workplace and you stand up. You want people to know, like disciples of Jesus, you want to be one who tells, who shares, who, who serves, who lives it out. And people give that subtle rejection. For most of us, it's not overt, in your face, I hate you. It's just you're not in the inner circle. You know, you're just looked a little differently. You're looked down upon. And that is, a, it's a smaller form of suffering, but we need to own up that. We may experience that in, in the neighborhood that we live in, but I want us to think about a few thoughts before we go to the table that will help us when we do serve, when we do share. What can we expect? A couple of things. Number one, Jesus is sending us to speak and to serve. He's sending us to speak and to serve. That is our mission. So we ought to be a people who don't shrink back from being there when people need it. That's why we have this push towards living out our faith in smaller groups of people. We call them missional communities. Call them whatever you want to call them. We believe that we don't just serve the city in coming to a room like this and hundreds of people and music But rather, we're best fit to serve the city by getting together in smaller groups and hearing what's going on in our neighborhood or whatever passion that stirs up within your group and doing something about it. Jesus sent his disciples, not 12 by 12, but what? Two by two. So there's something beautiful about getting together with a couple of people, maybe within your missional community, maybe in a smaller context, maybe in a slightly larger context, and saying, okay, what does it mean for us to serve? And what does it mean for us to share? And we need to find the balance of the two. I don't think it's enough to say, let's just do good in the name of Jesus and expect people to know who Jesus is. I don't think it's enough to clear a space and create a garden and hope that people will know that Jesus is the Savior of the world. I think it's important that we do those things. Don't, I mean, hear me correctly. It's important that we love people indeed. Would you agree? But people will not know the name of Jesus unless we say the name of Jesus. So his disciples were to proclaim the gospel saying, God is love, and God loves us so much he doesn't want to keep us in our mess, but he's created a plan of rescue, and that rescue is through repentance. That until you turn to Jesus and say yes and own up for what you've done, say, Jesus, I'm unlike the way you've created me. I've messed up. I'm guilty. I'm sinful. But I receive grace. You offered grace to me. You offered mercy to me. And you did it by sending your son and in your son's sacrifice, in his gift to me, his death that I deserved. He gives up his life that I deserve to pay. In Jesus' sacrifice, now anyone can come and find freedom and forgiveness because of Jesus. Is this good news? This is good news. I do not have to pay for the things that I've done. But instead, I can receive grace where I deserve judgment. I can receive mercy where I deserve wrath. And that is our message. So friends, where do you need balance in your messaging of the gospel? Some of us just yap too much. That's me. I need to learn to serve. Some of us, we do too much, but we're afraid to say the name of Jesus. I pray that this year that we'll grow in our sharing and in our serving. The second thing that we see here is following Jesus is hard, but it's always worth it. Jesus is going to say in Mark 8, it's going to cost you something to follow me. And that's why I think so many people are disillusioned with Christianity. The reason I think many people in America are disillusioned with Christianity is because I don't think they knew the message of Jesus in the first place. People grew up thinking what Jesus wants is for me to be a good boy and go to church and give a little bit and volunteer when the preacher says volunteer. That's what it means to follow Jesus. No. Following Jesus is at times difficult, because why? Jesus loves who? The whole world. So he's willing to push us out of our comfort zone and call us to do things that we don't feel equipped to do. That is the way of Jesus. If you choose to follow Jesus, he will wreck your life. Happy Labor Day. (laughs) But you know what? Some of us, we need our life to be wrecked, because we're too comfortable, we grow too complacent, we're too selfish, and we need God to wreck that. The things that are not like him, and remake us into loving, caring, serving people. Do you know what? Jesus does that. And if you'll allow the Spirit of God to work in your life, you're going to find that the more you follow Jesus, in one sense, the harder it gets. Why? Because I'm unlike Jesus in my own human nature. But Jesus loves me enough to call out my stuff and say, that's unlike me. And you know what? I can rescue you From that, am I saying it's impossible and it's all down? Like, follow Jesus and life will be horrible? No way. With the hard stuff, you get life. Following Jesus is an adventure. He takes us to places we never thought about. He opens up doors we never dreamed of. Following Jesus is the best way, but we need to know it's hard, and it's worth it. So, it's been. It's following Jesus been hard for you. Let me encourage you. You're not alone. It's not m- meant to be an easy cakewalk, but rather it requires a cross and a dying up to myself and a living to God. I know you're all greatly encouraged right now. Like, dude, lighten up. Give me an ice cream cone. Come on. Like, This is what the text says, and so we're just going to preach the text. The third thing I want us to see, and we'll we'll bring it to a close, is we need to recapture a sense of urgency. What you see in the Moving of these two stories together is it all happens fast. Jesus sends the the, the, the 12 out, two by two, don't carry an extra shirt, don't worry about housing, go, 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 go. And then we get a story about John the Baptist who's doing God's work. Suddenly, he's thrown in prison, and at a left field, he's killed. And it makes me ask the question, how much time do I have? I don't know. Now, we're not supposed to live in a panic. Now, this is the balance in it all. We're not supposed to walk around going, oh my gosh, I may die tomorrow. I got to do it all today. Listen, take a nap. You'll probably wake up tomorrow, okay? We don't have to live in a panic, but we do need to reclaim a biblical sense of urgency. The gospel is urgent news. People need to hear it now. People need to hear it often. People need to hear it again and again. And that's why we talk about the gospel every week here at sunset. Why do we do it again and again and again? Because I don't know where you are, and none of us know where you are, but tonight may be the night where you are confronted with Jesus and come to faith in him. And so the gospel is urgent news. We're about Jesus all the time because we don't know how much time we have. And Jesus, if you think about it, John the Baptist had a few years. How many years did Jesus have? Three. Three years of public work and he's gone. And the disciples, how many years did they have? They were, most of them, uh, uh, 10 of the 11 who survived, Judas killed himself. But of the 11, 10, we think, from church history were murdered, martyred for their faith at various times. Some early in the story, some lived longer. John the Apostle lived till he was old and he saw the church grow. You don't know how much time you have. So what I want to say is a good reminder, you've got this coming year, God willing. So this week you get new opportunities. Maybe this school year you have new classmates and new teachers. Or maybe you're an educator. You have a new crop of students that you get to invest in. We don't have all the time in the world. And living in America lulls us to sleep, doesn't it? We think we have all the time in the world. We think we have all the comforts in the world. But your life can be changed in a moment. Sickness could come in a moment. Death could come in a moment. And I don't want me to be a downer, but are you ready now? Are you effective now? Are you serving Jesus now? If not, the call from a text like this is be like the 12. Be like the 12. When Jesus says go, go. When Jesus says speak, speak. When Jesus says serve, serve. And be like John the Baptist. Be faithful. Be obedient. They had different results. John the Baptist, his life is cut short but yet he accomplished his mission. And maybe for you, you're not gonna do great and glorious things over the next few decades. Maybe God gives you the next few years. Whatever God gives you, the point here is make the most of it now. So tonight, the question is, what's God saying now? What would it look like this year if we prayed like never before, intentionally and with intensity, God, we wanna be about your business now. That's why we flipped up our whole prayer Rhythm, we started this Sunday at 5 o'clock. We're calling all of you. 5 o'clock, if you can make it 5 o'clock, right in the room over there. We're calling all of us to pray, to ask the Spirit of God, what do you want to do right now? What do you want to do not next year? What do you want to do now? We want to listen. We want to be obedient. We want to be in a posture of surrender where we're saying, God, we want to be used now. I encourage you as often as you can come, 5 o'clock, join. Don't just pray once a week at 5 o'clock, but join us in fervently praying for a move of God right now? What would it be, look like if we partnered like never before? This isn't just a solo operation. Jesus sends them two by two. He sends them in groups. What would it look like for you to get out of your solo mentality and join a group this year? Peek into a, a current missional community. Step out in faith. Start a new one. What if it looked like for you to partner with other believers and say, I want to do Jesus' work, but it, I, I require other people to do it. I need help. I need encouragement. I need resources. I need strength. It happens when we partner together what would it look like if we took risks like never before as a community if we said you know what forget ho-hum church let's step out let's listen to God and let's try things we've never tried before let's listen to God and let's risk for the good of others like never before what if we gave away more money than ever before What if we volunteered more than ever before what if we stepped out like these 12 you know what happened we'd come back and report and say wow look at what Jesus did question tonight, are you willing to pray? Are you willing to partner? Are you willing to take risks in Jesus's name? I can't answer that for you, but we want to create space for you to do that right now. Uh, we're not just going to sing a few songs and send you home. We want to create an environment for you to listen to the Spirit of God. Jesus is speaking all the time. He's speaking to us all the time, not in loud, big voices. He's speaking to our soul. He's speaking through the scriptures, and He will speak to you if you're open to it. So tonight here's what I want you to do. Take your Bible, put it aside for a moment. We're not checking out, we're not done. But tonight we want to create a few moments to practice. Practice what we've been talking about. Jesus called his 12 to him, and then he sent them out. He said, Come listen, and then he told them exactly where to go. And so, where is Jesus sending you? With whom is he sending you? What does he want you to do? This week, tomorrow, Tuesday. If we ask. Jesus will give us instructions. So let's start by asking. When it creates space, I'd invite you to close your eyes. It's it's just better because it, 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 it pushes away distractions. You don't have to, but it's helpful. And in this moment, it's quiet. Just ask in your own subtle, silent way, God, where are you sending me? What are you requiring of me? Just begin to ask. And you never know right here, right now, God, He may give you a name. He may He may put a place, uh, a specific thing. I don't know. But let's just begin by asking and inviting the Spirit of God to speak to us. And, and in a few moments we'll move on, but don't let the si- silence disturb you. Just.